Good evening. This is Peter Coleman. I am a professor of psychology and education at Columbia University, both at Teachers College and at the Earth Institute, and I uh, direct um, the International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution, and I co-direct the uh, Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity, which we call AC4, which is sponsoring this uh, series on um, scholars and practitioners affiliated with Columbia University who do work in the area of peace, conflict, and violence prevention. And t tonight I have the honor of speaking with Chris Blattman, who is an assistant professor in political science and at the School of International Public Affairs at Columbia. And he teaches on political economy of development, on African politics, um, and on the causes of war and violence. Uh, he's also been on faculty at Yale University and holds a Ph.D. in economics from Berkeley uh, and a master's in public administration and international development from the Kennedy School at Harvard. Um, Dr. Blattman's research looks at the causes and consequences of poverty and violence. Uh, so welcome to the show. Thank you. So I'm going to start with the basic question of how did you get into this work on poverty and violence, uh, a little bit about your background, if you could. Uh, well, I was, as a PhD student, I was working for my professor, my advisor, on one of his studies in Kenya. And one day I was uh, sitting in an internet cafe, checking my email, and uh, it was it was checking my hotmail, which tells you how long ago this was. <laughs> and sitting, and, and it takes like 10 minutes for the hotmail page to load up in Kenya right. at this time. And sitting next to me is this attractive woman who I start to talk to. And turns out she's a PhD student in psychology who's been doing uh, humanitarian work. And she's sort of dusty, having just come back from southern Sudan and northern Uganda. And mm -hmm. this is very intriguing. We start talking, and she's doing a study of child soldiers in northern Uganda. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and one thing led to another. And I ended up working with her doing a more economic and quantitative study of child soldiers and children affected by war in northern Uganda. Uh, a few years after that, we graduated. We got married the year after that, and we now have our. We just had our second child last year. So. Wow! So a, a mix of serendipity, conflict, and 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 love. Yeah. Th <laughs> so I, I feel badly for all the people who uh, get fast internet in Kenya right now because of all the <laughs> missed opportunities. Exactly. <laughs> great. Great. So, um, how long have you been in Colombia? This is my second, just finishing my second year. Oh, great. So tell me how, uh, give me a sense of the work that you do uh, um, in Africa in particular. I know you've worked <coughs> in Liberia. I think you've worked in Ethiopia. So give me a sense of you. Uh, so, you know, we, we, we found from our, our work in northern Uganda all of the, the effects of war on essentially making people poor, whether you're affected by war. And, and, and we also, there's also this idea that people... Uh, that my young young men in particular, when they're poor and unemployed, are more likely to fight or riot or rebel. And so you might want to relieve poverty in fragile situations just because people are so impoverished by the results of this war and conflict, but also because it might prevent future conflict. Uh, and that's a, a reasonable theory, and we don't actually have a lot of evidence that, that that's true. So we set out to, and I set out, so partly together and then partly on my own, set out to look at war-affected populations and especially high-risk men and look at uh, what happens, how do you make people less poor? How do you help them get employed in these situations where there basically are no jobs? And when they are more employed, are they less likely to fight, riot, and rebel? So high-risk men are men that have uh, a history of a criminal record or drug abuse history? or Yeah, so it'll vary from place to place. I have two, two main groups that I'm working with. We actually shifted to Liberia. One of my 
wife's advisors on her PhD, as it turns out, was a former politician from Liberia who's also a political scientist, and he coaxed us to come there. And there were a couple of groups. One, that the UN peacekeeping force and the government was really concerned about at the time. This was 2008, about five years after the war had ended. There were maybe eight or 10,000 young men uh, out, you know, in their 20s and 30s, many of whom were ex-combatants, all of whom were affected by the war, who were off in what they called the bush, so in sort of remote areas, in what they thought of as hot spots. So these are young men who are going to be illegally mining gold and diamonds. So you know, if you've seen the movie Blood Diamond, there's not much about that movie that's true, but <laughs> right. but the you know the, the element of, of of diamond mining, gold mining, this artisanal process by high risk young men is certainly true. Sure, uh, men who are occupying rubber plantations and extracting the rubber, even though this was owned by a company or by the government or mm. by some family, uh, or or men along the border with Guinea or with Cote d'Ivoire who they thought were at risk of mobilization into a conflict. So. There was a coup in Guinea in 2008 and rumors of recruitment of, of young men who were in gangs or just underemployed who were ex-combatants, some of whom were in the drug trade or in illegal border trade, mm-hmm. getting mobilized into this. So the UN was concerned about these, uh, as was the government, because they thought, uh, one, these guys are engaged in what are criminal activities. They're yep. illegally taking these resources. And secondly, if war breaks out here again, if war breaks out next door again, which as turns out it did a couple of years later in, in Cote d'Ivoire, then we're worried that these guys are going to fuel that conflict. Sure, sure. So uh, so how did you interface with the UN? Was the UN funding? Uh, well, was so the UN was everywhere at the time. Essentially, after the war, the UN came in and essentially co-ran the government with the government mm-hmm. uh, and, and gradually handed off, and is, and, but still runs a, a security to an extent in, in the country. Mm-hmm. That, that's phasing out. And uh, they were... They were actually about to disperse about $15 million for about 10 different programs, and mm-hmm. they were choosing which programs around the time that we showed up. And so they brought us in and helped us. We, we helped them think about which programs would work, and then we helped them think about how we would study the programs. Mm-hmm. And we ended up taking two of the things they stud- they funded and running big studies around them. And one was a study of ex-combatant reintegration uh, of these high-risk guys in the hotspots, and mm-hmm. another was uh, a study of alternative dispute resolution, uh, basically trying to try to make people and communities more peaceful but through mass education of conflict resolution strategies. So can you tell me a little bit about the reintegration project? I know that um, a, a colleague we have in common, Mike Wessels, mm-hmm. has talked a lot about the, the challenge of reintegration and understanding what works locally. Mm-hmm. What, what, you know, what does being an ex-combatant mean there? Mm-hmm. What does health mean there? And mm-hmm. how do you incorporate more local indigenous practices and knowledge with uh, what we think works, um, you know, in the West. Right. Well, so what I did there looked a lot like other employment programs I've tried to study. So the big problem in most developing countries, and this is especially true if you've had war, but this is true even if you haven't had war in a lot of places in Africa, is there aren't any firms. So nobody is there to hire you. There's no, it's very little wage labor. And so all employment is self-employment. You have to basically start your own petty trade or start your own business or, or become a farmer, which is just another kind of business. And, uh, and, and in, a, in a lot of these economies in rural areas, most people are engaged in farming. And so you look at these ex-combatants who are often in these rural areas, and what are their other economic opportunities? It's a little bit of petty business, but if you want to dissuade them from mercenary activity, if you want to dissuade them from illicit resource extraction, maybe farming is the right way. And, and, but we think that you know, we're worried that these guys don't want to become farmers, that mm-hmm. they don't like farming. That turned out not to be true. There's a lot of interest in farming. In fact, most of these guys are already farming. If you're off in this remote area mining diamonds, 
you can buy your rice incredibly expensively because you can just imagine what it costs to import it into these remote areas from the capital. Or you can scratch a little patch on the ground and grow your own rice or vegetables and mm. and a lot of them were doing that so the question is is what if we what if what if we could help them become much much more productive not just at growing their own food but at actually being cash croppers would they be less likely to do illicit resource extraction would they be less likely to get mobilized into the next conflict and so the un funded this organization that said yes we we can do that and we think what they need are skills we need to teach them how to be more effective farmers we need to give them more advanced agricultural techniques that are locally adapted that make sense in liberia and we need to uh we need to give them capital we need to give them in this case inputs like seeds or hoes or chickens or mm -hmm. pigs or materials to build a pigsty and if we do that then they'll be successful so how how long has that project been in place at this point? So that, that project ran from 2009 to 2011, and we just released the study, actually. or We released some early policy reports. We just released the academic study recently. Um, what we did is we ran this as a randomized control trial. So there are 10,000 of these ex-combatants that people wanted to target. They could handle maybe five or 600 at any one time. Uh -huh. And so they went into about a you know, uh, three or four major hotspots, and they went into maybe 130 communities in these hotspots. Mm. And they announced what they were doing, and people applied, and they, they had close to 1,500 people apply. Mm. And and what we did is we held a public lottery as to whether or not you got in. And this mm -hmm. actually got was perceived as fairly fair. People were happy with this, and what this meant is we could follow those people up after two years, and we'd have those who randomly received the treatment or were offered the treatment at least, which in this case was this four months of agricultural skills training at a residential center. So they'd pick you up, they'd bring you to this residential skills training center for four months. You'd get very hands-on practice. Oh. Then they'd relocate you to where you want to go. Usually it's back to where they were. Mm -hmm. And and then they'd give them two, two packages of inputs. Mm -hmm. If you like vegetables, they'd give you um, tools and seeds and things. And if you wanted to specialize in animals, they'd give you chickens and pigs. Uh -huh. And... Uh, what we found after two years, and one important thing is the people who chose, about half chose chickens and pigs and half chose vegetables. And it turns out it's really hard to get chickens and pigs in Liberia. You can't, you can't get chicks and you can't get piglets. Uh -huh. So you have to fly them in from Guinea, from Conakry. And when you do that and if you fly, chicks need to be warm. Like, I don't know that much about sure. raising animals. Right. I know chicks Husbandry. need to be warm. Right? Yeah. So if, right. You, if, you, if you put them in an uninsulated massive military jet right. or jet but plane right. they they don't survive right. as it turns out. so there's this tragic so none of these pigs or chicks arrived the, they, they did this repeatedly i think that the chicks and die and, and pigs died once or twice wow. uh eventually after we ran the follow-up survey to look at impacts they gave these guys who had chosen chicks and pigs a hundred dollars cash so this right. is actually going to be really important right. because we now have some people got skills. Some people's got skills and capital. And it turns out it's not random whether or not didn't, whether or not you got the capital, but right. it's actually turned out to be pretty close to random. So, we, but the, and so the people who didn't get it are expecting something in the near future. They've been told they have not received that they're going to get cash. And we run the follow-up survey at a moment when a war breaks out in a neighboring country. Mm. Uh, there had been a an election in Cote d'Ivoire in November 2010, mm -hmm. and the incumbent. Uh, lost the election, or so it seemed, but refused to step down because his this opposition figure who had fought a war against uh, almost 10 years before and there had been this tense standoff ever since then appeared to have won. And so he refused to step down and both sides mobilized and there was violence, violence, violence escalating to war by March or April before the French come in and essentially uh, arrest this incumbent president mm -hmm. and 
send him off to international criminal court to be tried, and and the, the, the opposition figure comes up. In the meantime, a bunch of really senior Liberian generals have gone over to both sides and are trying mm. to activate their recruitment networks. And mm. they, they recruit about 500 or 1,000 Liberian mercenaries. Mm. The numbers are unclear. The, the terms that got talked about were often you'd get a lump sum payment of about 500 or $1,000 to go over. Mm. And, uh, and about 500,000 people did, mostly from the city and mostly from a few border towns. So the guys we were working with in these hotspots had not been reached yet by the time the war was over, uh-huh. uh, unexpectedly. But there'd been some recruitment, right? The, the, they, they'd started to hold their own meetings to try to organize themselves. Mm. They started to make plans. So if you talk to them, and it's all self-reported, so you have to take it with a grain of salt, but if you talk to them, maybe one in ten guys will tell you, yes, I'm making plans to go to the border towns Mm -hmm. to get ready. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe one in 20 would say, I've I've been attending secret meetings, I've been offered $500, or I'm planning to go, or I've, uh, uh, I've accepted Maybe, maybe if slightly fewer would say, actually, I've accepted this implicit contract. I, you know, I've made some arrangements to go. So it's happening. And these are, these are all guys in the project? These are guys in our sample that we studied. The so they, they either yeah. received the program or yeah. they were part of the random control group. Got it. And uh, so what we, find, what we find is interesting. So most of these guys want to be farmers. If you give them the skills and you give them the capital, for example, the guys who specialized in vegetables, uh, what they did is they essentially – they essentially shifted away from uh, illicit resource extraction mm-hmm. towards farming. Mm-hmm. Now, they don't. nobody exits illicit resource extraction. It's interesting. There's some studies. There's a similar study, and this is exactly what economic theory predicts. There's an interesting study of drug dealers in Chicago, and they find that uh, when wages go up, they shift out of drug dealing into wage work. But they don't shift. They don't exit drug dealing. They, uh-huh. You've got a portfolio of activities, right? You've, uh-huh. It's like, it's like you know, you don't, if, you, if you've got an investment portfolio, you don't Correct. just buy Microsoft, right? Right, right? You buy a whole range of things because you're, you're trying to mitigate your risk. You're trying to optimize. Sure. So this is what they're doing. This is their portfolio. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. so they, they're optimizing because there are these risky streams of income. And so they, they just sort of shift their mix. They f- shift their investment mix. Uh-huh. And so they, nobody exits drug dealing in Chicago, but they, they shift the mix. Right, and right. nobody exits uh, illicit, illicit resource extraction in Liberia, but they shift the mix by about 20%. So uh-huh. that's, that means about 5 or 10 hours fewer a week in illicit resource extraction going into farming. I see. And their incomes actually go up. So, yeah, the illicit resources, this is the illegal diamond mining and gold mining and, uh, and, the, and the rubber uh, occupying of rubber plantations. Uh, that and and it also involves some illegal logging in some cases some illegal hunting. So this is basically taking things that belong to a firm or belong to the state or belong to a community. Uh, a lot of these guys are not from the communities where they're mining, right? And they're 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 taking them out of the ground or wherever they take them from. They're selling them. So they just occupy a rubber farm. They occupy a mine or exactly. uh, and and take the resources, right? So things that don't belong. Yeah, right. and and in here the, the 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 mine is basically you just dig a hole and you sift through the mud uh-huh. because it's all what they call alluvial. So you don't have to dig down way under the ground to find mm-hmm. like a gold seam. You actually sift through the mud, and if you sift through mud all day, you'll get a little tiny thimbleful, not even a thimbleful of gold dust. Mm-hmm. But that'll that'll pay your wages and then some for that day. Sure, yeah, yeah, got it. So, so they they do less of that as right. a result. Right. Um so that's in, so that you know that's in some ways that's kind of commonsensical. Sure. But at the same time we never really knew that that was true. Uh-huh. Because you know you think well why do people really engage in criminal activities or 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 illicit activities? 
there might there's lots of other like non-material reasons that they might do this. They might be uh, we think we think that people don't want to be farmers. We think that there's not a lot of esteem in this. We uh-huh. think that they might like the quick money. There's all sorts of sure. right. Farming is really hard as well. It's really right. hard work. Yeah. Um, but what was especially interesting is they were less likely to get mobilized or to start engaging in all these recruitment activities around mm-hmm. the war in Cote d'Ivoire. So they were less likely to say they'd attended these secret meetings. They were less likely to say uh, that they were making plans to go to the border mm-hmm. uh, quite dramatically. Uh-huh. So there's a pretty dramatic fall. Uh-huh. And and they're, 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 so, so and, and the interesting thing is this was true for everybody, but it was especially true among the guys who didn't receive their chickens or their pigs. And at first we scratched our heads about this, and we thought, what? Well, we would have thought that the people who were doing the best at farming, because yeah. their incomes are highest, they'd be the least likely to go. Yeah. But what was special about the guys who had been promised the chickens and pigs is they expected in the next couple of months to get a cash transfer of $100. Uh, so they said, well, I can go off to war for $500, right. and then who knows what else I'll get after that. Right. Or I could stick around, and I have, I'll get 100 bucks. But if I go off to war, when, uh-huh. they, when they come here to, to give me the money, uh-huh. I'm not going to be here. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so, so this promise of, of a little bit of future money, yeah. a cash transfer, right. uh, which, is a, which is uncertain. Who knew sure. if they were going right. to show up? Money and then the future possibilities. Exactly, of, of farming. Right. Uh, what outweighed this, this, this very immediate lump sum yeah. thing of, of going to war. Yeah. So that, you know, that, that suggests... You know, if we wanted to dissuade recruitment in some of these areas, uh, you know, cash transfer programs are becoming, you know, they're already ubiquitous in Latin America mm-hmm. and some parts of Asia. They're becoming more common in, in Africa mm-hmm. as a much cheaper and maybe more effective way to, to relieve poverty. They might also dissuade people. If you could somehow condition on not going to war, not fighting, which is easy if the fighting is in another place. Sure. Uh, you might be able to persuade people away from... Sure, bad behaviors that have them going away. So, so do you have any sense that? So, it sounds like this group that was waiting for the payment mm-hmm. was less inclined to, you know, become somewhat engaged. Mm-hmm. And the, but those that were farming, more they actively. were also slightly not. They were also less inclined, okay. but not to the extent. So overall, uh-huh. everybody was less inclined as a result right. of getting this program. But it was biggest and most dramatic. That's interesting for those that were waiting for the payment. Right. Yeah, exactly. Came in. Great. Um, and so, and so, you talked also a little bit about a um, on an alternative dispute mm-hmm. resolution. So let's def- define what that right. is. Right. Well, yeah. so running this. Program. This was ridiculously difficult, like tracking these ex-combatants sure. over, like tracking 1,500 uh, of these highly mobile. They've got aliases. <laughs> they have no fixed address. This oh. is a time. You're, this is also, you know, 2008 is the start of the global financial crisis. And yeah. so what happened during the global financial crisis that matters to these guys is the price of gold skyrockets. Uh-huh. So they all start shifting. All the guys who had interviewed on mining areas, diamond mining areas and rubber plantations started moving to these gold areas. Uh-huh. Uh, and so we, it was just inordinately hard and very, very expensive to get these guys. And we had to find them all or mm. close to them all because otherwise we, we might not have, we might have missed people who went to Cote d'Ivoire. So uh-huh. we just, uh, I haven't really looked at the, the amount of money that we actually spent to find these guys in the oh. end, but it was, it was extreme. So to do this, you, and, and Liberia doesn't really have very functioning roads mm-hmm. and fuel is ridiculously expensive because of the, all the fuel gets shipped in on trucks. Uh, uh, sorry, shipped in on ships and then distributed by UN trucks, and mm-hmm. and and so the UN came up to us at the time we were planning the study, and they said, "Well, 
we'd really like you to study this other project about alternative dispute resolution. I said, I don't really know anything about that. Mm-hmm. And your program doesn't sound, your program sounds kind of ridiculous. <laughs> uh, I didn't say it in those terms, but that's what I thought. <laughs> right. And I said, so no thanks. And they said, well, we'll give you three land cruisers and free fuel for two years, which was a value of like two hundred or $300,000 because wow. vehicles and fuel are so expensive in Liberia. Right, right, right. So that, I thought, fine. <laughs> fine, okay, I can be bought. I'll learn about ADM. Exactly. Right. And so their strategy was this. They said, well, <clears throat> there are a lot of disputes in these little communities and villages. Uh, and this might be a, a town of 5,000 people or a village of 300 people. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these disputes are over property. They're over loans. They're over uh, land. Yeah. And sometimes over, you know, just all the things we have disputes over. Like uh, some, in Liberia, they call it man-woman business. Uh-huh. Um, but basically a dispute between spouses or lovers. Sure. And uh, and they said, so we think that we can teach people how to resolve conflict better. And so mm. we're going to go to 100 communities. or 100, Actually, I think they were going to go to 125 communities. And we're going to spend – we're going to train people. We're going to get them in a room in groups of 30. Uh, and we'll give them eight days of training and conflict resolution skills. And we'll try to change their idea of how they would how, – how, how they can resolve conflict. Mm. They'll become agents of change in their community. And we're gonna we're not just gonna do this to the ten or twenty leaders. People have already done that. These guys are all resolving conflicts. We're gonna go in and we're gonna get one in every ten adults or one one in every seven adults even wow. in every community and we're gonna teach them to be agents of change and conflict resolution. We're gonna teach them how to do this. Is this the uh, UN development program that's doing this? This or was is this, the... uh, this was a local organization. Uh, well, it, it's an international organization that's really locally run, uh, associated with the Catholic Church. Uh-huh. That was being getting the money through the UN through the UNHCR, the the High Commission for Refugees. Okay, community um, of San Egidio. Pardon me. Was this the community of San Egidio or different? It's called the JPC, the Justice and Peace Commission. Oh, okay. So they're okay. they're they're all over the place, but they're uh-huh. but they're really locally run uh, in each place. Just as yeah. like the Catholic Church is actually yeah. really locally run, even if it's an international organization right. in theory. Um, so. So, they, so, so this was their idea, and this seemed—I don't know—this seemed a little bit incredible. Here are these really high-stakes property disputes. So, you have some long-running, intractable conflict over land boundaries, or even some recent conflict over uh, who uses this land or who uses this market spot. Right? Mm-hmm. Because I've left because I fled during the war, and you came back slightly before me, and of course you grabbed the best market spot. Sure. Why wouldn't you? But now I've come back, and now. You agree that this is my market spot, but you've also reconstructed the building, so you'll hand it over, but you want to be compensated for the building that you've put up. Right. Or, like, the building, the you know, it's like a wooden structure. Sure. Or, or you know, who knows what the land boundaries are from before the war. Like, right. there's no records. Everybody has com- competing titles. If, to the extent you even have title, which is rare, so do four other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so how do you resolve this? Yeah. So, and, and you're going to tell me that you're going to go in, and you're going to send your two trainers in there, and you're going to spend three months there because you have to train like 400 people in alternative dispute resolution. Right. And you're going to tell me that two years later, it's going to be peace and happiness. Mm-hmm. So it seemed a bit... Right. Uh, I mean, in the sky. Yeah, right. it, seems like, it seems like naive social engineering uh-huh. in the sense that... It, and and it, there's this instinct, you know, whenever you, whenever you work in international development, what I keep bumping up against is there's this idea you have these elite people from the capital or these yeah. elite people from another country yeah. who say, I'm going to run trainings. This is all these organizations who have training, 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 training. <laughs> right. and, and I feel like it's like they're, what they're really saying is I'm just – if you'd only listen to me, you poor, right. stupid person. If right. you would just sit down and if I could lecture you sure. for a few days, then you'll, you'll you completely change your life. Yeah. Right? Because I'll tell you the right way to do it. So it just strikes me as very naive yeah. and, and 
system of, of change. Yeah. Um, so it turned out it worked. It worked really, really well. <laughs> That's uh, much to my surprise. Right. Uh-huh. So, so we and and so we started thinking about why it worked. So how did it work and why did it work? Um, so we went back after I guess about uh, an average about a year after the the, the average training had been run. So there was yeah. variation. It was everywhere from a few months to two years. Uh-huh. And property disputes and money disputes and men woman business and all these none of these had changed if anything disputes had gone up a little bit sure because people are being encouraged to engage their disputes this is actually quite yeah. risky you know yeah. you know everybody grab your disputes and like reopen Talk old wounds right. and attack them and you thought oh no, this is going to lead to more violence uh so one in five people had a land dispute for hmm. example in the community at this time and about one in maybe one in three of those land disputes turned violent in the sense Occasionally, it was really violent, mm-hmm. but more most of the time, it was a punch in the nose mm-hmm. or property destruction. So I trample your crops or I mm-hmm. rip down your fence posts or something. Right. So, but you know, we can all imagine what this would be. You know, it's very it can be acrimonious, yeah. uh, and and so most of these land disputes get resolved without the program. So mm-hmm. maybe four to five land disputes get resolved without the program. In any case, uh-huh. but that means well, you know, one in five really persistent land disputes. Yeah. Um, and and what happened is those went down a lot. That those the level of unresolved land disputes went down by about twenty percent. Uh-huh. And whether or not they turned violent, whether or not there were punches in the nose or property destruction, also went down by about the same amount. Hmm. So people and the and the, the results and we don't can't quite nail this, but it seems to have been largest among the really long-standing land disputes, mm-hmm. the ones that had just proven intractable through the existing institutions. Yeah, because. So 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 there so this was so actually the thing that we were most skeptical about was actually happening. That's fascinating. Yeah. And so we tried to figure out why, and and we so one of my co-authors on this was a graduate student who works with me, who's an ethnographer, and so we we did a lot of ethnography, you know, basically a lot of qualitative work. She just lived in these communities forever, uh-huh. uh, doing a lot of interviews, uh, and we combined that with this quantitative randomized control trial because what what because they wanted to tra- tackle 125 communities, we said great, let's select 250 that you think are deserving. And we'll hold a lottery, wow. and 125 get it. So we, we follow yeah. we follow the ones that get it and the ones that don't over yeah. over over the couple of years. We do really intensive qualitative work to try to figure out what's going on. Yeah. And so what was going on in these communities is, uh, let's say we have a land dispute, you and me. Yeah. And uh, you you I, we disagree about where the boundary is. So maybe we go to the the the, the town chief, who's some administrative chief, and we get we arbitrated or there's some process. And and you like the answer and I don't mm-hmm. because it benefits you. So what do I do? I go to the other town chief, which is the traditional chief who wields a lot of authority, and maybe I get a different answer for him. Or I go to the leader of my ethnic group, or I go to the magistrate in the formal court, or I go to the, your boss, the town chief's boss, who goes on. So so, we, and we can do this because there isn't really a clear. You know, here you go to yeah. the court, you go to the court, and there's a dis- decision. All the other courts respect that, right? Um, there, there's just a lot of different forms. You no can, road and you map, can shop yeah. around which yeah. form you want. And so they even have a term for this in conflict resolution called forum shopping, and it's yeah. rampant. Yeah. Uh, and 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 people have also broken down. They stop talking. They may, if, if they've they've shopped enough forums and they can't find it, so they've just now now they're just sort of angry about it. And sure. So what this what this what this in, encouraged people to do is to sit down to not use the formal system, hmm. maybe to use local people who, like mm-hmm. traditional chiefs and things of this nature, to resolve things, but actually to sit down. It actually taught them how to negotiate better, uh-huh. essentially how to not lose their cool, uh-huh. how to 
to basically, and then to think about solutions that are essentially win-win solutions, uh-huh. in the sense that rather than you know he's the winner, he's the loser. Yeah, there's there's, you, there's a way to divide the pie. You're both losing by not, yeah, uh, by not doing this. So and so it basically just tried to give them change their ideas about what was possible, sure, and then change the skills that they had to try to address it. Yeah, a- attacking some of these intractable, these things that yeah. need disputes to break down, fascinating, and essentially speed it up. And when you speed up disputes, and when you when when you make them less likely to break down, then you also get fewer. You get f- you you get more resolved disputes. You haven't reduced the number of disputes, sure, but they resolve more quickly, sure. And you get fewer punches in the nose. Right, right. And so people seem to really appreciate these. So you can think, you know, one way to think about dispute resolution is like a technology, right? Mm-hmm. But it's it's a way of doing things. Sure. That it's it's not like a phone kind of technology, but it's it's like a set of skills or practices. Yeah. That that people need to learn, right? You invent technology, you you invent skills and practices, and they don't just distribute everywhere immediately. Sure. So essentially, people have learned things elsewhere in the world over time yeah. that, that actually help to resolve conflict in another part of the world because some of these things are a bit are, are universal. Sure. And so this is what they seem to have really taken away from it. Fascinating. Now, have you pu- have you published this yeah, project Yeah, so this, yet? this came out in the American um, – Political Science Review last month, in February, February, March, actually. Great, great, very good. And then we went back and we collected longer-term data a few months ago. So we collected, we went back a further year or two later. Uh-huh. I think it was 18 months later. And we found this, the effects are persisting, but they've diminished. So uh-huh. actually, conflict uh-huh. has gone down a lot. Things started to stabilize since the war. So there's just fewer conflicts. Uh-huh. So it's hard to pick up the effects. Sure, sure. But but they're there, but they're they're much they're much milder. Very interesting. So they're starting to fade over time. Does Is the training somehow continuing through any kind of institution or is it real was it really just pe- no, people centered it, it didn't it didn't go on you know you could imagine so the the the, the unhcr which helped fund yeah. and initiate this runs these kinds of things in refugee camps sure. and all the time so sure. it's continuing in a broader sense uh-huh. uh but it's but it hasn't been continuing in liberia in, in this project right got it. it it sounds to some degree like what you provided was clarity Right, a sort of a structure to have a conversation and solve something, as opposed to, ch- as you say, chase the authorities. Right. You know, convenient authorities. Right, right? Yeah. and but that yeah. you know that's what's a little bit surprising. But is that just by educating people, by talking to people, yeah, you can actually lead to that kind of high stakes behavior change. Yeah, yeah, uh, is is but but you know as we started to look that and it's you know because I'm inherently suspicious of a lot of social engineering. Sure. You, where you actually see a lot of evidence for this also being true, ironically, through radio. A lot of radio programs in developing yeah. countries try to, through mass communication, lead to yeah. behavior change. And and soap operas and television shows. So yeah. there's, you actually, there's examples of people running randomized controlled trials with soap operas, with radio shows, reducing ethnic violence, reducing yeah. teenage pregnancy, reducing all sorts, certain types of behaviors. Yeah, yeah. Merely through mass communication. Thank you. Very much. This thank is you. really easy, fascinating, uh, rich, um, and so thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Okay. <laughs>